It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And this is our third to last chapter about the book well or third technically to last this is the like fifth to last yeah no chapter, sorry this is then, yeah 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 but we will be getting we are hoping to get through the third to last chapter which is to say the beginning of the chase the final yes. three chapters of note shall we say because there's the epilogue after the chase but it's very short yeah yeah i don't think an epilogue counts as a chapter it's it's not called a chapter um i, I can't argue with that <laughs> But no, what I meant to say was that this was our third to last episode. I just said chapter instead by accident. Yes. And then um, after that, we're going to have the appendices. Yes, we do have plans to continue this podcast after we finish the novel. Um, we don't really need to go into that right now. We can no, leave, no. We can leave that mysterious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you all will, will have to find out what that is when you get there. Um, but in the meantime, I'd really like to get directly into Yeah, let's do Moby it. Moby Dick. Yeah, chapter... Or the whale. <laughs> chapter 131, The Pequod Meets the Delight. This uh, one is a very straightforward chapter. Yeah, this is the last, like, meeting with another ship that we're going to see in the book. Um, no comment. Continue. Well, okay, this is the last chapter with the title, The Pequod Meets so Yes, it is absolutely um, the last, like, gam-adjacent chapter. We yes. will have no more gams. Yes. The time for gams is done. <sighs> yeah, so they, um... You know, Gams. The, Sorry, I just enjoy saying it. <laughs> also gesturing while he says it. Uh, doing like a little sort of... Blowing uh, up my spot. He's doing the... Um, oh, what's the... And now you know hand gesture. See, I think of it as the... Um, because of a different set of uh, dumb memes. The imagination hand oh, gesture. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's that too. Anyway, um, <laughs> so they encounter another ship. Um, called the delight yes and it's not a delight no um <sighs> as usual you know there's the usual hail has seen the white whale and the answer uh is that the, the answer to that question is the captain just says look and points at a wrecked boat that they have on board yes the whale boat that has been destroyed and also on board they're sewing up a hammock which is to say they're preparing for a sea burial because the sailor is so into the hammock and thrown overboard. That's right. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, Ahab asks if they've killed the white whale, and the response is, The harpoon is not yet forged that will ever do that. Uh, and of course, this is like a perfect setup for Ahab, right? He's yeah, like, yeah. not forged, and he pulls out the harpoon and is like, look at that. Look ye, Nantucketer, here in this hand I hold his death. Tempered in blood and tempered by lightning are these barbs. And, uh, it's so good. You know, the other captain is like, well, all right, you know, good luck. God keep the old man. Like, I I support your quest, I suppose, uh, but um, five of my men are dead, and I'm only burying one of them now because the other four were lost in, you know, were drowned, presumably. Ye sail over their tomb. 
Yeah, I say we're drowned, but you know, it's entirely possible they were just eaten whole. Or, like, eviscerated, hit with the tail that does not cause a physical injury, but just knocks your soul off, as previously established. Yeah. Possibly some of them just saw the white whale, died of fright, and fell off. Look, there's a lot of ways you can die in the presence of Moby Dick. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so they are, they're literally in the middle of the, like... Sea of Ariel. Yeah, the, like, the funerary arrangements. And, uh, Ahab obviously has, like, no respect for this and just, uh, sails off as quickly as possible. Also, there's an ill omen there. You don't want to, his bed might be unnerved by watching this whole funeral, but, uh, he doesn't manage to escape. Uh, I like this line. Not so quick, indeed, but that some of the flying bubbles might have sprinkled the Pequod's hull with their ghostly baptism. So some of the spray from the funeral, uh, like, descent... The uh, drop of the um, of the body may have splashed the Pequod's hull. Yes, um, and uh, and as they're sailing away, um, the Pequod's life buoy, made of a cor- uh, not a corpse, made of a coffin, uh, you know, at the stern, becomes visible to the other ship, um, and uh, somebody, you know. Somebody points it out and what an ill omen it is, you know? Yep. Um, In vain, O ye strangers, ye fly our sad burial. Ye but turn us your taffrail to show us your coffin. Yeah. Which, damn. Yeah. That's why you don't get a coffin tramp stamp. (laughs) Jesus. Um, anyway. uh, Sorry, that was just a really stupid thought I had, and then... It just popped into your head and you had to say it. I had to say it, I understand. Anyway, uh, something that I was kind of wondering about was whether this might... Uh, something about this encounter might qualify uh, for part of the um, prophecy that Fadala made about what must precede Ahab's death. Oh, um, interesting question. Yeah, so like um, what he said, I, I'm, I'm referring back to chapter 117 for this. Um, uh, Ere thou couldst die on this voyage, two hearses must verily be seen by thee on the sea, the first not made by mortal hands, and the visible wood of the last one must be grown in America. So, I mean, I do think it would be arguable that the delight in this context is a hearse because they are a vehicle that is performing like a funeral rite. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it really matches up with what's being said here because I don't think this, I mean, obviously the delight was made by mortal hands and we haven't seen what I would understand to be the previous hearse. So even though pres- even though probably the Delight's wood was made in America, because yeah. it seems like it's probably a Nantucketer. Yeah. Um, I don't think this fits, but uh, I am like, I don't know, I'm trying to keep my eyes out, because <laughs> I, I would be very surprised if these things don't happen, you know? You're you're uh, you're watching Macbeth going, okay, but but when does the wood come to Dunsinane? Okay, but like something... I don't know, that's totally it reasonable. It happens in yeah, Macbeth. Yeah, It's It's, you know... I assume, yes, that it's going to be a little bit uh, tricky, and it's not literally going to be a hearse flying over the water, but... What you're saying is that you think that Tolkien's uh, Ents coming to Isengard is not as good as the original Forest comes to Dunsinane. I think they're both good. I'm Fair not enough. opposed to either. I mean... I just, that's that's the, um, the famous example of someone being like, no, this should be literal. Yes. Uh, yeah. I... I yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't... I. I don't think it's a bad thing that the um, the way that the prophecies are fulfilled in Macbeth is a little bit, like, uh, technical. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think it's a bad thing that, um, 
I, I think the things that Tolkien decided to do in the Lord of the yeah. Rings that were sort of in response to that, I don't think those are bad either. No, no, that, that's perfectly fair. I don't disagree. I'm just... I just think it's fun that you're, like, prophecy spotting in the latter half of Moby Dick. Yeah. So, all right, that's that's the delight. Really don't have much more to say about that. Yeah, um, no, I will point out, I love the, um, like, just the, the two-word bit at the beginning, which is most, mi- sorry, three-word uh, bit of alliteration, most miserably misnamed the delight. Yes. It's yeah, good. as far as we're, uh, I also like the first sentence of this chapter, the intense Pequod sailed on. It's like, yeah, it is intense. That's true. I'm yeah, pretty sure we've described yeah. it that way before, often. Yeah. It is intense and it has intensified. Yes, yes. Ah. All right. So, chapter 132. The Symphony. The Symphony. Oh, um, oh sorry. <laughs> it happens. Um, this is... I don't know why you expected me to stop in the middle of my <laughs> phrase. Like, no, that, yeah, that's very fair. <laughs> um, I, just, I heard a pause and I was like, huh? <laughs> I was pausing for effect or to take a breath. We don't do that here. <laughs> uh, so this is a this is an auditory medium, the theater of the mind. I, yes, but, okay. I know that is not actually an argument against taking a breath for effect. I'm just being silly. Uh, <sighs> so it's um it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love a lot of the language here. It was a clear steel blue day. The firmaments of air and sea were hardly separable in that all pervading azure. Oh, and then there's a whole gender thing. Yeah, um, basically the the sort of like blue like eternity of the sky and the sea are are similar, but also like are are kind of counterparts. And the way that Ishmael describes this is by gendering them. Yes, the sky um, is full of peaceful, you know, kind thoughts and solicitous, and therefore is feminine, whereas the ocean is, like, stronger and more material, and also has deep within it whales and sharks and other, you know, things representing the murderous trouble, the troubled murderous thinkings of the masculine sea. Yes. It's a lot. Yes. Uh, but, but, uh, and, and, and there's even, uh, like, it's even compared that they are, like, um, like bride and bridegroom. Yes. Uh, that it's it's as though the the son is like the the king, uh, presumably the father, giving like the princess sky as bride to the sea. Yeah, it's it's a I believe not a king, but a royal czar and king is how the son is described, which I just think is a fun description. But yes, it's a really extended conceit, and it sort of develops as like a set of metaphors. First of all, I really like any imagery that's like the horizon melting into the twin blues that's just a thing about the ocean i like so i really like the beginning part of this and then as it develops out the sort of um the idea of the heavens and the sky and its clear blueness as feminine becomes uh, a way of contrasting it with ahab rather than with the ocean um yeah by the way do you so i know that like egyptology became very popular during the 19th century. Yes. Um, and I'm curious, because, like, in, like, Egyptian mythology, there's the idea of, like, I guess it's actually the sky and the earth. And yeah, that, not the Egyptian sky and the mythology sea. doesn't really care about about the sea that much. It cares I mean, a lot more about the river. That's, like, understandable. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, okay, no, because, yeah, I was thinking of a different... Cause the idea of um, the sky and the earth as, like, lovers uh, who are, like... 
you know, who meet at the horizon. That's, yes. That's a that's a thing, but it is about the Earth, not the sea. So, yeah. I don't yeah. think it really has anything to do with this. Yeah, I don't think it's it's really uh, appearing here. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, a- as you say, um, in addition to contrasting with, like, the masculinity of the ocean, there's also a contrast with, like, Ahab's kind of... Uh, ruined and, rack and, and yeah his his like his like troubled brow yeah do we want to read this description of ahab because i think it's really good can i yeah sure tied up and twisted gnarled and knotted with wrinkles haggardly firm and unyielding his eyes glowing like coals that will still glow in the ashes of ruin untottering ahab stood forth in the clearness of the morn lifting his splintered helmet of a brow to the fair girl's forehead of heaven yeah and yeah there's this sort of Again, it's the conceit and the metaphor shifts from masculine-feminine pair across, you know, the horizon and all of its, like, you know, beautiful azure space to... And then there's Ahab here, who is not contrasted with the sea at all, but is only contrasted with heaven and air and the sky. Yeah, and and, and there's this idea that, like, the the air itself, the weather, the, the... And it kind of comes to mean, like, just sort of the environment in general is, like, this sort of... Um, not just feminine, but also, like, young and innocent. playful, innocent, yes. Sweet childhood of air and sky. Yes, and, and, that, and that in this, like, the world itself, like, the, um, the air, the good weather as almost, like, representative of the entire material world is, is trying to soothe Ahab. Uh, tr- it's, well, it's complicated, because there's also sort of the, there's obliviousness. There's, like... You know, oh, immortal infancy and innocence of the Azure, invisible winged creatures that frolic all round us, sweet childhood of air and sky, how oblivious were ye of old Ahab's close-coiled woe. Well, I'm talking about the next paragraph. I know, but I think we should work through this bit by bit, because I think this builds towards uh, uh, that. Okay, but I was trying to... I was trying to move through it a little bit more quickly. <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with you, yes. There's this idea of, like, youth, but then it moves into this further image of the world itself, which is broader than, like, the... The air is like this little playing child, uh, but then, like, in the next paragraph, the air uh, represents um, the stepmother world. Yes. Right? Um, so that, that is what I was trying to do. Yeah, but I think that the obliviousness is important to the concept here because it's like, it's shifting from... Yes, you know, this obliviousness, this cheerfulness that has no concern for Ahab can somehow also become or be seen as a kindness towards him. And I think that's important because the obliviousness is so much of Ahab's issue with the world. The fact that it will destroy men and not care for them. And so I think having that obliviousness first be sort of reworked into, oh no, it's childishness. It's, there's also this thing that is that shows up in power moby dick that i think is worth calling out which is you know little miriam and martha like two children dancing around some an old father who's like ruined and miserable and is like a has a described as a burnt out crater of his brain but they don't realize any of that but scholars haven't according to powermobydick.com scholars don't know who those children were or who the father is yeah yeah they're just miriam and martha just two two names they're they're not those are you know like like, uh, like biblical figures. names, yeah. But they're not, but they're not biblical characters who had anything to do with each other or who yeah. like necessarily represented like childhood. I don't think. Yeah. Um. So yeah, scholars have been baffled. 
Yeah, there's a there's one interpretation that PowerMobyDick.com cites, which I think is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. In the 1930s, William S. Ament suggested they might be Ishmael's own children, and that he might be telling the story as an old man. So it's like Ishmael is when he when he refers to these children gambling around their mm. sire, he's talking about himself. Um, I I I, I mean I I think it's like a possible idea, but um, and, and it kind of fits with the idea of just mentioning the names of these children with no context mm-hmm. right um but uh i would be surprised that with ahab describing himself as having that burnt out crater of his brain but i'd be equally surprised by ahab having children sorry ishmael ishmael i'd be surprised by ishmael describing himself as having a burnt out crater of his brain so much so that i plot i made it ahab yeah and i'd be really surprised if ishmael had children yeah, yeah. Or that he wouldn't have at least mentioned them before now. Yeah, yeah. Well, um... So, yes, and then we come to yeah, the so, stepmother so, world. Yeah, so I, I guess, um, yeah, it is. it was worth, like, emphasizing that kind of, like, childhood, uh, childishness and, and obliviousness, which, as you said, is in some sense, like, Ahab's complaint against the world. Yes. Because, uh, because it, it kind of... Despite the fact that in some sense the the beauty of this scene really is nothing more than a representative of what Ahab complains about, like the fact that yeah, the world it, does not recognize his woe. It is still just the world, but now he feels in the, if I think the phrase is the enchanted, the lovely aromas in that enchanted air and the, you know, the general beauty of the Pacific causes him to have this moment of feeling like maybe the world is, you know, now affectionate. Yeah, and I think there's even a sense here that it's like the the air and the sky is is ignorant of his woe, but the world as a whole is yes. not. Yes. Um there's the idea yeah, he's looking over the side of the boat into his shadow, which I don't know if you've ever done this on like uh, a boat in the ocean. Um, but especially if the sun's behind you so your shadow's falling down, it creates this really weird halo effect. Because the shafts of light are all, um, they all seem to be vanish at a vanishing point in the middle of your head because that's where your perspective is. So you look down into the water and there's this like radiance coming into your shadow and then your shadow just cuts down in and you can see deeper. And that's what Ahab's doing now. He's, you know, watched how his shadow in the water sank and sank to his gaze. The more and the more did he stro- that he strove to pierce the profundity. Yeah, and um, the, like... I think that there is a sense here that um, the, so there's the the comparison, the stepmother world, so yeah. long cruel, forbidding, now threw affectionate arms around his stubborn neck and did seem to joyously sob over him, as if over one that, however willful and erring, she could yet find it in her heart to save and to bless. So now we're no longer talking about the, the like, sort of girl children mm-hmm. of the air, but, like, the, the world, which has been a, a stepmother to him, which I think is, there's... I think there's two things going on with that mm-hmm. comparison. One is the kind of like, you know, the fairy tale idea of like an evil stepmother, right? So yes. like the world has been a cruel mother to Ahab. But also a mother who doesn't nece- does not start from the position of definitely, you know, loving the child. That's part of the the stepmother thing in the fairy tales is, well, you know, she's not your actual mother, your biological mother, she's your stepmother, so there's no, she doesn't have a necessary reason to love you according to, you know, nature and uh, familial bonds, so, but here, but she could come to love you, she could accept you. Yes, and, and I, uh, and, and that is kind of what this sentence is yeah, saying, yeah. is that the world is in this moment, 
like coming to love Ahab and and trying to uh, turn him aside from you know his like willful erring ways mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know kind of like having sympathy for him and yeah. caring about him and uh, if you said there was a second well the other thing I think is going on is that. Um, you know, this, I think, alludes back to the things Ahab said during that speech in The Lightning, mm, yeah. where it's like, the world is not his true mother. His yeah. true mother is something yeah, yeah. outside the world. Um, Gnosticism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is also interesting that in the moment of, like, near reconciliation with the world, this possibility of some kind of, uh, some kind of way to go forward... The world is now feminine, not, you know, the Abraxan, masculine, demiurge, but instead this sort of, uh, this, this stepmother figure. You can accept her in the place of Sophia, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think it's, it's worth noting that this is not a world that is ignorant of Ahab's woe. Yes. Like, the heir itself is, is ignorant, is childish, but it's really just sort of the child of, maybe the messenger from, in some sense, the world which is weeping for Ahab, which is saying, like, you know, I understand why you're so sad, and, and I want you to feel better, you yes, know? Yes, this, this idea that maybe the world could be kinder. Um, and I do think there's a, there's a slip across this entire set of metaphors that I think is really interesting, where in each step, the world is, or rather, the air and the sky and thus heaven are feminine and in, like, close familial relationships but the way those relationships work sort of fades in and out from bride to child to stepmother and there's this sort of almost a sliding as it like tries to fit or tries to find something that ahab can love or accept or alternatively it's coming in all of the guises of like feminine love and ways that you can have this relationship with i guess women in your life but also with the world arguing that the world is actually not evil yeah and uh this does bring ahab to a single manly tear from beneath his slouched hat ahab sorry from beneath his slouched hat which has to be a new hat yeah he uh, got a new hat ahab dropped a tear into the sea nor did all the pacific contain such wealth as that one wee drop honestly that gets me it's yeah. The idea of Ahab having, like, a single tear that is, like, this incredibly precious thing is, it's good. I, I have, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, then, uh, there's this fascinating tense moment where Starbuck sees this. Um, Starbuck sees Ahab leaning over the side and, uh doesn't literally hear Ahab crying because it's only one tear, right? But he he perceives Ahab's grief. Well, he also perceives, I think, the world's grief. Uh, He seemed to hear in his own true heart the measureless sobbing that stole out of the center of the serenity around. And that center can be Ahab, but it could also be the center of, like, the world. This idea that Ahab is being compassionated by the world for this moment. Yeah, that's fair. Um... So yeah, Starbuck like perceives this emotional moment, and then he draws near like silently and like unnoticed. And I I think that there's a lot of tension in like why exactly he's coming near in that particular way. Because on the one hand, it could be that he is, you know, that he he wants to sympathize with Ahab as well, and he is. Mm-hmm. 
cautious about that because because Ahab yeah. flies into rages all the time. Uh, but I also think it's very possible, or at least that we are meant to consider the possibility that he's thinking about pitching Ahab over the side. See, I really did not think he was thinking of pitching Ahab over the side. I thought that he was like, maybe, maybe I can use this. Maybe I can turn us back. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's fair. Um, Just because it is like on the deck in broad daylight. Yes, that's true. Yeah, probably it isn't that. I just think that, uh, at the very least, we don't really get told what Starbuck no, is. No, and, and And Starbuck doesn't speak to Ahab. It's Ahab no. who notices Starbuck. Yeah, Starbuck just comes and, like, stands near him, sort of hovering, and then Ahab turns and sees him. Yes. And, uh... Do we want to just read Ahab's speech here? Do you... Let's, uh, maybe do, like, the... Both parts... Um, if yeah, you want, yeah. you can do Ahab and I'll do Starbuck. If you'd like. Yeah, sure. that works for me. Sure, sure. Starbuck. Sir. Oh, Starbuck. It is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky. On such a day, very much such a sweetness as this, I struck my first whale, a boy harpenier of 18, 40, 40, 40 years ago. Ago. 40 years of continual whaling. Forty years of privation and peril and storm time. Forty years on the pitiless sea. For forty years has Ahab forsaken the peaceful land. For forty years to make war on the horrors of the deep. Aye, and yes, Starbuck, out of those forty years I have not spent three ashore. When I think of this life I have led, the desolation of solitude it has been, the masoned, walled town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits but small entrance to any sympathy from the green country without. Oh, weariness heaviness, guinea coast slavery of solitary command. When I think of all this, only half suspected, not so keenly known to me before, and how for forty years I have fed upon dry, salted fare, fit emblem of the dry nourishment of my soil. When the poorest landsman has had fresh fruit to his daily hand, and broken the world's fresh bread to my moldy crusts, away, whole oceans away from that young girl wife I wedded past fifty, and sailed for Cape Horn the next day, leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife? Wife? Rather a widow with her husband alive. Aye, I widowed that poor girl when I married her, Starbuck. And then, the madness, the frenzy, the boiling blood and the smoking brow, with which, for a thousand lowerings, old Ahab has furiously, foamingly chased his prey. More a demon than a man. Aye, aye, what a forty years fool. Fool, old fool, has old Ahab been. Why this strife of the chase? Why weary and palsy the arm at the oar, and the iron, and the lance? How the richer or better is Ahab now? Behold, O Starbuck, is it not hard that with this weary load I bear, one poor leg should have been snatched from under me? Here, brush this old hair aside. It blinds me that I do seem to weep. Locks so grey did never grow but from out some ashes. But do I look very old, so very, very old, Starbuck? I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped, as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. God, 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 crack my heart, stave my brain. Mockery, mockery, bitter, biting mockery of grey hairs. Have I lived enough joy to wear ye, and seem and feel thus intolerably old? Close. Stand close to me, Starbuck. Let me look into a human eye. It is better than to gaze into sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land, by the bright hearthstone, this is the magic glass, man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. 
no, no, stay on board, on board, lower not when I do, when branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick. That hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with the faraway home I see in that eye. Oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul, grand old heart after all, why should anyone give chase to that hated fish? Away with me, let us fly these deadly waters, let us home. Wife and child, too, are Starbucks. Wife and child of his brotherly, sisterly, playfellow youth, even, even as thine, sir, are the wife and child of thy loving, longing paternal old age. Away, let us away. This instant let me alter the course. How cheerily, how hilariously, O oh my captain, would we bowl on our way to see old Nantucket again. I think, sir, they have some mild, such, some such mild blue days, even as this, in Nantucket. They have, they have. I have seen them some summer days in the morning. About this time, yes, it is his noon nap now. The boy vivaciously wakes, sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, of cannibal old me, how I am abroad upon the deep, but will yet come back to dance him again. Tis my Mary, my Mary herself. She promised that my boy every morning should be carried to the hill to catch the first glimpse of his father's sail. Yes, yes, no more. It is done. We head for Nantucket. Come, my captain, study out the course and let us away. See? See, the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand on the hill. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted tree he shook, and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What cousining, hidden lord and master, and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me, that against all natural lovings and longings, I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time, recklessly making me ready to do what in my own proper, natural heart I durst not so much as dare. Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? But if the great sun move not of himself, but is as an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can revolve but by some invisible power. How then can this one small heart beat, this one small brain think thoughts, unless God does that beating, does that thinking, does that living, and not I? By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world like yonder windless, and fate is the handspike. And all the time, lo, that smiling sky and this unsounded sea. Look, see on Albacore. Who put it into him to chase and fang that flying fish? Where do murderers go, man? Who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? But it is a mild, mild wind, and a mild-looking sky, and the air smells now as if it blew from a faraway meadow. They have been making hay somewhere under the slopes of the Andes, Starbuck, and the mowers are sleeping among the new-mown hay. Sleeping? Aye, toil we how we may, we all sleep at last on the field. Sleep? Ay, and rust amid greedness, at last year's scythes flung down, and left in the half-cut swaths. Starbuck! But blanched to a corpse's hue with despair, the mate had stolen away. Ahab crossed the deck to gaze over on the other side, but started at two reflected fixed eyes in the water there. Fadala was motionlessly leaning over the same rail. <sighs> so yeah, that's, that's Ahab's sort of grasp at human feeling yeah yeah that last tear had a lot in it yeah yeah <sighs> um there's a few things i want to i want to point to here one is that um so starbuck is theseus kind of oh yeah 
I see what you like, mean. There, there's a classical like, illusion in his son looking for the sail returning to show that uh, his father has survived. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That is that is kind of a, a reversal of the, mm-hmm. the part where Theseus's father is watching for Theseus's sail. Yes. Um, but Starbuck is also presented as, like, youth and... Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely, yeah. There's Starbuck, a lot going on. Yeah, and um, this is, you know... Uh, this is definitely, like, um, I think in a certain way, um, just as much as the the moment with the musket, mm-hmm. this is Starbucks' chance yeah. to turn the Pequot aside, and he's not able to to manage it. Um, because I think I, in this, sorry, go on. I mean, I do think there's this possibility that... Like, Starbucks sees this moment where he can connect mm-hmm. with Ahab in this, like, feeling about family and this longing for Nantucket. Um, but he's not able to continue that sense of connection and, and to, like, look back into Ahab's eyes as Ahab actually, like, is once more reminded of his woe and, and the suffering that is in the world. Yeah, A- Starbucks cannot compassionate Ahab's actual misery and madness and his his war with God, Starbuck can't say, yes, it is wrong that this thing happened to you. God sinned by doing this. And so he can't actually convince Ahab to turn aside. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think that is really explicitly spelled out here. Like... Yeah, he's... he's Starbuck can't take this talk. It, it Yeah. He is, he is driven away with despair. And at the same time, this is when Ahab is turning to Starbuck. Like... That moment where Ahab, looking over the side, like, turns back to Starbuck, like, to ask for his support and Starbuck isn't there is just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I don't even think that necessarily, like, you know, um, I think there are things that somebody could have said to Ahab in this moment Mm -hmm. that would have reflected his humanity back to him, but also maybe... Turned him aside. Turned him aside. No, yes. I, th- I think that's really true. I mean, he, he more or less asks it here. You know, he's like, you know, I can't stop. There is something in me that refuses to stop because basically it is God, God is at fault here and I can't stand that. You know, that, that line, you know, um, who's to doom? Who's to be damned to damnation? Who's to be damned when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? And like, that judgment of God, that idea that, you know, God made the world this way, God made Ahab this way, God set all of this in motion, so why is it that I bear the punishment and I'm the damned figure? That's not something Starbuck is prepared to follow him into. Starbuck's not willing to say yes. I mean, on some level, Starbuck is unwilling to... Starbuck is Job's friends, because in in the book of Job, God more or less says, yeah, there was no reason for this except to test you. There, You did nothing wrong. You never sinned. Meanwhile, all of Job's friends have been insisting, no, you must have done something wrong. God wouldn't smite you for no reason. But the entire point of the book of Job is sometimes people get smote for no reason. Right. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, and, and I think it it's interesting that, like, this is one of those moments, or at least the beginning of this... The last yeah, yeah, yeah. paragraph of Ahab's speech, because I think he kind of moves through this idea. But yeah, it, yeah. that part of the paragraph is one of these moments where Ahab seems almost to, like, resent his own 
monomania. Yeah, his own monomania, his own drive towards revenge. Yeah, like, no, I think you're it, right. It's not something, in some sense, it's it's not what he wants to do in his own proper natural heart. It won't make him happy and he knows it. Yeah, it's just something something in him that keeps forcing him on. And, and, and I think this is, in some ways, like, this shows like the operation of the monomania, right? Because yes. he's he's questioning it, right? He's saying, "What is it in me that keeps driving me onward that like isn't me?" But then the question, "Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? Like, what is it in me that does this?" That develops through this idea that it, it is God who ultimately that everything in the world moves according to God's will, yes. right? And that itself supports the monomania. That supports the case against God. And yeah. so even saying, I hate that I think this way, I don't want to pursue Moby Dick, that... Leads to pursuing Moby that Dick. That gets developed further into, yeah, the need to pursue Moby Dick. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it's... I think that his monomania has a certain rationale. Like, part of it is not just that, you know... It, it is his trauma. It is the monomania in the sense of it. It is the, his madness maddened. But it is also the fact that there isn't an argument against this. There isn't a, like, an easy answer. Or maybe Starbuck could have given one, but he's certainly not present at the end there. There isn't a way to make sense of this dilemma, and that is the reason he is, you know, for, dr driven onto this. The irrationality of it is the pursuit of Moby Dick when he can't directly skewer God. Yeah. And, you know, there's also a good argument to be made that those are not unsynonymous within this narrative. So yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that, as I, I usual... Didn't, I didn't mean by bringing up the monomania to say that I thought there was anything irrational here. No, no, no. <laughs> I, my, my point is just that I think part of this is that Ahab cannot escape the conclusion, cannot escape his own, like, worked-out understanding of the world, which is monomaniacal, and cannot you know, break free of it, especially without some kind of fellowship saying, yes, you have this, this feeling is, I mean, on some level, he wants Starbuck to say you're valid. He wants Starbuck I mean, to say, like, yes. yes, your woe is, like, your woe is reasonable. You don't have to forgive God to go home to Nantucket. But on some level, I think Starbuck believes he does have to forgive God to go home to Nantucket. Otherwise, it's just damnation in slow motion. Yeah, yeah, um... Or, or even, like, I'm not sure that it's even that sort of theological and mm -hmm. thought out for Starbuck. Oh, yeah. I, no. I think it's more just that Starbuck, it's not that Starbuck can't say, like, you're saying that what Ahab wants is for someone to say, yes, your woe is understandable, is reasonable. And I think that's kind of true, but on some level, I think all he really wants is for someone to look him in the face while he speaks of his woe and just, like, see it, yeah, witness I... it. I, I don't even think that the person's rational response to it matters as much as just the existence in fellowship with him. Mm. And Starbuck can't even manage that. Yeah, no, you're, you're definitely right that Starbuck, Starbuck cannot handle Ahab's full despair and still stand by him. Yeah, very literally. Like, he just can't even look at it. Um, Meanwhile. Let alone, like, say anything yeah. that might be, that might, yeah, validate him or, yeah. or comfort him. He can't, yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, I like... I like also the mention of, you know, as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. Drawing back to that metaphor that we had to had a lot of fun with, of this image of, like, primordial man, Prometheus or Adam, like, down at the root of human, human existence. This, yes. like, core experience. It's, you know, 
Ahab is claiming to stand for all humanity in some way, and he's built the Pequod into something that can stand for all humanity, and Starbuck cannot compassionate that, cannot handle that. Yeah. Uh Um, Well, there was another thing as well, which was, uh, I mean, overall, just that it's a really emotionally affecting chapter. I I honestly teared up uh, reading it again, you know, preparing for the episode. Um, But there's something about... Ahab's, like, anger and frustration and and fear and pain, um, which is, I think, that, uh, yeah, he does just want someone to compassionate it, but he also wants someone to understand it a little bit, and there is one person on board who can look Ahab full in the face in his moments of direst and darkest uh, moment. Right, and that is obviously Fidala, right, at the end of this chapter, and I I think, you know, um, obviously... Fadala seeing him and in some sense understanding him does not in any way comfort Ahab or, or no. uh, turn him aside from his purpose. Because Fadala is like, yes, you are at war with God and I'm here to take God's side. Yeah, and, and I think also there's, you know, we've we've been given to understand that Fadala is maybe not human, right? Yeah, um, yeah. If, if Fadala is in fact, uh, I mean, if this is the book of Job, Fidala is Satan, like the adversary, the tester of humanity who shows up as the, like, the advocate for the, for the, um, prosecution in the court of God. Yes. At least that would be my take, that Fidala is the present entity who does not directly smite Job, but who encourages that smiting and brings things to a head so as to prove out, like, the test in question, which leads to a really interesting question of what is being proven by Ahab's, uh, challenge to Moby Dick. Yeah, I think we should maybe explain a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, something people don't necessarily know about the role that Satan plays in the Book Mm -hmm. of Job. Um, uh, There's, um... So the the figure of, like, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the, like, rebel angel, who is also the kind of primary opposition to God. The controlled um, opposition. No, Ben. I'm talking about the Christian idea. Yeah, but it's still, he's still doomed to lose. Sure, but he's, controlled it's not, opposition... It's not a... What I'm saying is it's not a dualism. Okay, sure. But my point is, the one who actually hates God and is on the other side. Yes, okay. okay? That's what I mean. Um, that figure... I mean, first of all, there's lots of actually different understandings of like yeah, what yeah, the devil is. That's a lot of different figures. Um, but uh, that idea is not one that necessarily exists in that, like, with all of those things wrapped up into one in, like, Judaism. And there's a lot of elements in that that just straight up don't appear in Judaism. Like, Judaism doesn't have rebel angels. Really. Yes. Well, it has Nephilim, and, you know, there's also set. There's also a lot of elements in that that just don't appear in the Bible at yeah. all and don't appear in, like, Christianity before, like, Paradise Lost and stuff like sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but... my, my main point is that, like, that figure is really, is like fully, I would say, meaningfully distinct in terms of its its meaning from Satan or the adversary in... Um, in Job. Yes, in Job and in, I mean, that's like a very old, like that's like Babylonian captivity era. Yeah, and so this is something that I think, you know, when you have the idea of like Satan as the figure who is totally opposed to God and is like a, a rebel against God and hates God, mm-hmm. this can be kind of strange when you read the book of Job and like God and Satan are kind of hanging out and talking (laughs) and like 
basically seem to be on the same side in terms of tormenting Job. Um, and uh, as Ben was alluding to, there's this idea that like what the word Satan means is is adversary. And um, Ben also brought up the idea of like sort of uh, the prosecution. Yeah, lawyer yeah, yeah. for the prosecution. The adversary is not the adversary of God. The adversary is the adversary of humanity, the tester. Yeah, so this is an idea that essentially Satan is like a like an angel or like a figure who is aligned with God. It's just that his role in sort of God's uh, court. God's this court. Is, this is a period when, because it's the Babylonian uh, exile, and this is a period when the theological image of the Hebrew God becomes very connected to like a Sumerian or Babylonian, like literally king in his court. This is why you get the whole Leviathan monologue is very straightforwardly um, taking off from poetic models of like Marduk or other Babylonian king gods who are like great hunters. Here is the Hebrew god presented as the greatest possible hunter, the mightiest, who draws Leviathan out with a fish hook. And similar and that showed that is from Job, which is why I think Job is such a good point of connection for Moby Dick as a whole. Yeah. And this means that in that context, Satan is literally a vizier, a courtier, a guy in the court of God whose job is to be an advisor who's like, maybe this man Job, who claims to be loyal and faithful to you, are you really sure? Because he's he's rich and successful and happy. What if he weren't those things? Would he still be faithful to you? And God says, well, let's test it. And so we kill all Job's children and we destroy all his wealth. Right. And so this is the idea. This is even uh, something which... Uh kind of like etymologically goes into the idea of Satan as the tempter. So mm -hmm. like temptation in, in a, in a Christian context, we think of that as like tempting you to do sin. Um, but the like Latin verb tempto, I want to say literally means test in the sense of like, like a test. moral test. Well, no, or... in the sense of test, whether something is good. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, like yeah, you yeah. could test a weight. Got right? it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so temptation in that sense, is what Job experiences in that he is tested to see whether he's still good after all these terrible things happen to him. And obviously, that is part of moral temptation. It is a moral yeah, yeah, temptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you're... But, but it's a... I'm glad you specified. Yeah, it's it's a... It, it's a... Um, almost like a, like... Uh, technical. Yeah, a technical or, like, mercantile metaphor. Yeah, yeah um, it's... You know, we've had forges and we've had carpentry and we've had the idea of testing the leg to see if it's good. And that's sort of the, um, that's the concept is testing, will this thing hold? Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is, this is all a, a long way to go around to talk about the idea of like what it means to say that Fidala is like the Satan figure in the book of Job and yeah. why that means that we're not really saying that he's the devil. Yes. Um, it's, <laughs> I think that it's entirely possible that given Melville and given Ishmael, he is... Th those two are being conflated a bit, yes. given Stubbs' whole he's the devil thing, but if Melville is looking back to the book of Job, where God and the devil are in cahoots in a certain sense, from a Christian perspective, where Satan and God are on the same side and Job is the one, like, alone, left out, and, you know, being fucked with, quite frankly, that creates a very different dynamic around saying Fedala is the devil. Yeah, because ultimately... More gestures. <laughs> you, you just can't stop. I can't. Ultimately, like, it is true that obviously this book is coming from a Christian perspective and so is uh, probably, probably uh, Melville has the read on the book of Job in which 
that Satan is... The devil that later shows up in other things. Exactly. But at the same time, the relationship that that Satan has to God is, I think, of great relevance to, to the way that this book thinks about God and Satan yep, yep. and the Demiurge. And demonism and Ophites and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the fun stuff. Abraxas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lord of the real. I realized I didn't say Abraxas enough in previous episodes, so I'm really making up time on saying the word Abraxas on Phil. Camera. <laughs> Microphone. <laughs> we, Abraxas is fucking with we me. We could just take a little video of you staring into the camera and saying, Abraxas. You said it. <laughs> ah, okay, I think we have now hit. All right, yeah, let's satur- Abraxan saturation. Yeah, let's 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 uh, let's go to the next chapter. Yep. Um, uh, chapter one thirty three, the chase, first day. So, hey, it's the chase. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the the final chase. We're actually gonna chase Moby Dick here. Yep. Um. Uh. So yeah. Um. This you know the the first sign of this is that ahab smells the whale coming um sorry you just said whale and it's really charming i did didn't i anyway yeah, uh apparently apparently there is like a distinctive whale smell which like oof i bet that's awful but um yeah i mean so this this is one of those claims that showed up very early in the book that there's a there's a smell that whale that sperm whales give off there's what's called a sleek where the water gets really like because of some unctuousness of the whale, according to Ishmael, there's a region around a sperm whale where it's where it's already like sailed through that where the water gets really like shimmery and flat and and sort of viscous looking, and so uh, Ahab smells the whale and they see the sleek and they're generally pursuing the signs of a whale. Which also, I just had this thought reading this, which is like. I can't. I would be hard pressed to track a large animal like by its footprints, and they can track a whale by its water prints. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, and uh, they, you know, obviously, unsurprisingly, they they man all the mastheads, and uh, they uh, they set all the sails uh, mm-hmm. once the sleek is sighted, uh, and. Um, Ahab uses smell to change, like, heading during the night to be like, nope, nope, it's that direction. Yeah. Presumably that's going more into the wind, because smells go with the wind, but it's presented as Ahab having an almost uncanny, like, sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And obviously uh, Ahab has himself hoisted up in that little rope contraption, um, and uh, it turns out Ahab is the one who first sights Moby Dick. Um, Do you want to read the line? Sure. There she blows. There she blows. A hump like a snow hill. It is Moby Dick. So like the most classic whale sighting possible. There she blows. Yep, yep, yep. And And so Ahab claims the, uh, or Ahab goes, you know, did any of you see it first? And Tashtay was like, I saw it at the same time. And Ahab's like, not good enough. Doubloon is mine. Yeah, the doubloon is Ahab's. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, um, you know, he's, he's just, uh, calling out all kinds of orders for them to make ready. And, oh yeah, we didn't really highlight this in the last chapter, but I think it's worth mentioning because it comes up again here. Mm-hmm. He's decided, Ahab has decided that Starbuck is going to stay on board the Pequod. And, like, basically, he, it seems like he wants Starbuck to survive. Yes. he's He does not think Starbuck needs to take part in his revenge. He has, in fact, given Starbuck kind of what Starbuck wanted in a certain sense. He's saying, you are... You are exempt from my madness. You are not part of my, like, 
crew that will follow me into hell's mouth. But on the other hand, you will, like, still be here helping me pursue the White Whale. Right. Like, on some level, what's happened here is that Starbuck has been given the role of commanding the ship. Yes. While all the boats go after Moby Dick. Which is a much less dangerous position. It's much less dangerous, but as we'll see, it's certainly not irrelevant to the chase. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Um... It's not like Starbuck is being... Starbuck is not being put in the cabin like Pip. Yeah, Starbuck is not... Starbuck is still involved. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, they lower the boats. Oh, there's also a note that to the credulous... They see the um, spout of Moby Dick from a distance. Ah, yes. And uh, to the credulous mariners, it seemed the same silent spout they had so long ago beheld in the moonlit Atlantic and Indian Oceans. Remember the, the spirit spout? Yeah, yeah. People believe that this is the... That, that they saw Moby Dick before and that was the spirit spout. <clears throat> so, um... So what do you think? I mean... I have no way of knowing. Fair enough. Seems cooler if it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm... I'm very much of the opinion, it's like, to the credulous mariners, okay, thanks, Ishmael, but is it, though? Is it? <laughs> so, yeah, um, oh. uh, yeah, they, they, um, they lower the boats, and, uh, Fadala makes a weird face yeah. in Ahab's boat. Yeah, yeah, Ahab, Fadala's there, and, and, uh, in Ahab's boat, and is not... Fadala doesn't seem happy about this. No. A pale death glimmer lit up Fadala's sunken eyes. A hideous motion gnawed his mouth. So he's, like, grinding his teeth super hard. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh... Yeah. Also, when Ahab claims the doubloon, he says, uh, Fate reserved the doubloon for me. I only. None of ye could have raised the white whale first. Like, this idea that Ahab was able to raise the white whale. Raising the white whale is not merely, like, seeing him, but, like, requires some kind of spiritual quality to be like, yes, there is the white whale. Yeah. Almost conjuring him into being. And, uh... More gestures. <laughs> he, uh, he, you know, they get, they get close, um, and, uh, they can actually see, um, Moby Dick. Uh... We see him at last. Yeah, um, and... and it's it, a it's an elaborate and impressive description. Yeah, Moby Dick is essentially like moving through the water with like a kind of divine panoply. You yes, know? there's uh birds have landed all around like in the water and on the white whale and even I think most impressively uh there's a recent lance that was darted into Moby Dick that is like still sticking up out of his head and birds are like perching on it. Yes. So there's this, like, and they're all white seabirds, because of course they are. Right. So there's this, like, white carpet of almost blossoms and feathers on the on the water. There's white birds circling in the air. There's the white hump of Moby Dick. And uh, Ishmael compares this to uh, Jupiter or Jove or Zeus when, in the form of a white bull, he carried off Io. No, Europa. Europa. Sorry, you're right. Io was... got turned into a cow. Thank you. Europa... And then got chased all over the place by Europa a... was yes. carried off as a woman by a bull. Yes, thank you. Sorry. It's You see how I got those confused? Yes, yes. Yeah, you yeah. thought that for some reason Jupiter would, like, take on a corresponding shape <laughs> to the person he was going no, to seduce, I, I, but no. I just didn't remember that Io got turned into a cow. I was just like, Io has a connection with cows. Yeah. No, but it's, uh, this is the... Um, this is the, yeah, the scene from myth where, yes. as, as so often and in fact, happens. Europa is stated here. Yes. Um, and, uh, th- this is, you know, the, the comparison here is to like a divine white animal swimming, 
Yes, uh-huh. and uh, specifically, not Jove, not that great Majesty Supreme, with a capital S, did surpass the glorified white whale as he so divinely swam. So, he's just this immense divine figure. And in fact, in the rest of the chapter, he'll be referred to as the Grand God, among other things. Yes. Um, Ishmael, and... having seen Moby Dick, is a convert. Yes. And there is this also, like, great sort of calm in the water spread out from the whale. And, and uh, Ishmael suggests that it's almost, like, kind of uh, seductive, that, that this would uh, bring people to believe that, that, I mean, I guess that the, the sort of serenity of the water itself makes people think that they will be able to take this on. But in fact, uh, they, they, will, they will find that quietude but the vesture of tornadoes. Well, I mean, and that's directly calling back to the typhoon where, you know, there's that, sorry, I'm taking a little while to page back to it. Warmest climes but nurse the cruelest fangs. The tiger of Bengal crouches in spiced groves of ceaseless verdure. Skies the most effulgent but basket the deadliest thunders. Gorgeous Cuba knows tornadoes that never swept tame northern lands. So Moby Dick, like the Pacific, is all calm and beautiful. The symphony is here as well. There is something glorious in it, but it's, to some extent, if not a ruse, then at least it hides the storm that w- waits within, the uh, the actual, like, his sleek is a trap. Yes. And uh, then... Um... I also, I just want to point out one of the best verbs, uh, um, which is... Uh, bejuggled and destroyed yes. which is what moby dick or storms do to uh fools who come against them yes anyways uh moby dick air juggles this is important information <laughs> do we have frame data on moby dick oh my god sorry so yeah and uh then um uh moby dick uh sounds um he he like raises his head and dives yes um, still withholding from sight the full terrors of his submerged trunk uh, entirely hiding the wrenched hideous, hideousness of his jaw. Well, he's doing that before he oh, sounds. Oh, yes, you know, Then he right, sounds right. and he comes out of the water. The grand god revealed himself, sounded, and went out of sight. Yes. Um, and uh, and um, at this point, uh, everyone is, you know, as we've seen before in Lowerings, everyone is waiting for the whale to come back up again, and Ahab says, an hour. Yeah, Ahab uh, knows how long... Uh, the uh, white whale soundings last. Yes, uh, but in this case, he's actually wrong, uh, and Tashtigo is the one to notice it, uh, because the birds are all flying directly towards Ahab's boat. And circling around it. Yes, and uh, this is a sign that actually Moby Dick is making for that boat. Yes, their vision was keener than man's. Ahab could discover no sign in the sea. But suddenly, as he peered down and down into its depths, he profoundly saw a white living spot, no bigger than a white weasel, with wonderful celerity uprising and magnifying as it rose till it turned, and then there were plainly revealed two long crooked rows of white glistening teeth floating up from the undiscoverable bottom. So yeah, Moby Dick has come up under Ahab's boat and is like coming up to bite it yes directly underneath and just imagine being ahab the 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 birds these weird heron-like birds they're never specified a species i don't think um they're just described as being like herons or like other birds they circle around the boat and you know there's this cry you know look at them he looks down over the side and down 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 he sees this tiny white speck like no bigger than a weasel is First of all, small. I'm choosing to imagine the least weasel because it's adorable. Sure. But, um, you know, any weasel is pretty small. So there's this tiny whiteness deep down below. And here's the thing. 
I enjoy sailing. I enjoy going out on the water. And occasionally you're like, huh, I am on the surface of a thing that is much, much deeper. And I can only see a tiny degree down into that. There's a, there's a term, I think thalassophobia is the fear of the sea, but also the fear of depths. And this moment where looking down, deep, deep down, there's a tiny thing. And then it grows and grows and grows is just, that image is terrifying to me. It has an incredible uh, power to it. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely experienced that sort of um, fear of deep water uh, in, in, in the way that I've definitely had like a sense of fear sometimes looking over the side of a boat. Um, and also, uh, whenever I'm like, usually it's in like museums of natural history. In deep time. No. Oh. Uh, when there's a display where there are, like, sea creatures hanging from the ceiling. Mm. And usually in these types of displays in a museum, they will kind of have the lights dimmed to give you the impression that you might oh, be underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That always makes me incredibly anxious. Like, there's a, there's a display at the American Museum of Natural History in New York where they have a, a I think it's a sperm whale, yeah, a sperm whale and a, a giant squid fighting. And I find it very hard to stand next to that. I've mentioned before that you're very brave for doing this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, there, so... There is a specific term for fear of whales, but... Yeah, but it's not It's not fear of whales. It's fear of the idea of yeah. being deep underwater. Yeah, but um, yeah, for me, it's very much the sense of, like, extending depth that I don't find horrif as horrifying with, like, deep time or looking up into the stars at night. But looking over the, the side of a boat, I can occasionally get that glimmer of it. And, yeah, the idea that there is something coming up for you, something huge and unseen, and it's malevolent, and it's like a sea monster. That's... I cannot imagine anyone lacking at least a small amount of, like, at least a little frisson of fear yeah. at that, you know, imagining themselves in that position. Yes. And uh, Ahab steers the boat uh, away from the surfacing Moby Dick, uh, and then immediately changes places with Fadala, as we've seen captains do, or not captains, but we've seen the mates do, uh, when they're going to try to harpoon a whale. Mm -hmm. Um, but... Yeah, so, so they, they manage to, like, spin the boat around and get away from, like, the approach that Moby Dick is taking, but Moby Dick, like, with notices... With that malicious intelligence ascribed to him. Yeah, so Moby Dick rotates as well, and manages to still get his he his head under the boat in such a way as to bite it. Yeah, and... Through and through, through every plank in each rib, it thrilled for an instant, the whale obliquely lying on his back in the manner of a biting shark, slowly and feelingly taking its bows full within his mouth, so that the long, narrow, scrolled lower jaw curled high up into the open air, and one of the teeth caught in a rowlock. So Moby Dick has, like, gone belly up just under the boat, so it thrills to the, the boat, like, runs along him for his, like, jaw for a second, so that the jaw is now, like, up like almost like a tiller straight up like hanging over the boat um obviously this is both terrifying and incredibly frustrating to ahab because he can't get an angle to strike at moby dick with his harpoon yeah like the the you know the head of the whale is incredibly near but it's it's upside down and i think you know ahab's not going to be able to like strike through the bottom of the skull towards the life spot and also it's under the boat like none of the angles line yes up. yeah so and uh also the teeth the tooth is in a row lock yeah like the like and it's a slow bite it's not like a chomp it's like the the jaw has come up, it's got it, and now Moby Dick is going to slowly 
bite through the front of the boat, presumably savoring the taste. Yeah, I mean, uh, in this attitude, the white whale now shook the slight cedar as a mildly cruel cat her mouse. So he is playing with them as like a, a you know, cruel hunting animal does. Yes. Um, and uh, As a cruel hunting animal does. I believe you will find that the yeah, sperm whale is a hunting animal. Yeah, I didn't mean like a... I, sure, sure. I think you can say as X does when you mean that something literally is X. Yeah, no, that's fair, that's fair. Um, you know, as you do. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. A- anyway. Well done, well done. Uh, so yeah, um, and, uh, uh, Fidala is, well, unastonished. Yes. Um, and, but, but. Fidala's just like, yeah, this is about what I'd expect. Yes, uh, but, but the, the crew, and these are the, the hand-picked men who were supposed to be, like, Ahab's special crew for hunting Moby Dick. They are all scrambling to get to the furthest possible point for Moby Dick's jaw. I mean, I don't think that's unreasonable. <laughs> well, no, they're certainly making a reasonable decision here. I'm just saying that, like, they are they are tumbling over each other's heads. Yes. Like, they are, they are in a panic. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. These are, this is the uh, Philippine, uh, Filipino crew. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they are. Um, um, the, like, yeah, Ahab's, like, specially chosen, extremely capable crew who always get him, like, faster than anyone else out to Wales. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, and, uh, Ahab, just in a sense of, like, desperation because he can't do anything else to deal with Moby Dick, decides to try to pull one of his teeth out. Well, not quite. He tries to grab... The he grabs the jawbone, the whole jaw, and like with oh. both arms, and tries to. He's trying to push Moby Dick like off the bow so that the boat isn't destroyed. He's trying to force. He's just like I just imagine him seizing the the upstanding lower jaw, but the terrible weapon that he is at worth. He's literally struggling with the thing that took his leg. Wait. So all right, what it says literally is. He seized the long bone with his naked hands and wildly strove to wrench it from its gripe. So is he trying to tear Moby Dick's jaw off Moby Dick's I mean, I think skull? he's trying to do whatever he can do to it, but I think I think he's also trying to pull it off of the boat. But that's not its... Oh, I guess I guess you're right. Yeah, its bite onto the boat might be considered its gripe. Exactly. I, I, I was thinking that its gripe meant, like, the attachment of that bone to the rest of Moby Dick's body, which is I why I... I think it's just a weird way of spelling grip. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It, it's just I didn't... Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. He is trying to... I think it makes the most sense to interpret this as him trying to tear Moby Dick's jaws away from the boat. Yeah, but it's... To be clear, it's vainly strove. Yeah. No but, matter what his goal is, he can't do shit. Here. Yeah, this is an absurd thing to attempt. Um, And, uh, yes. of course, finally, the jaw does snap shut and the boat is totally broken in half. Um, uh, and um, Ahab... Uh, was who saw that it was going to happen. He can tell what Moby Dick's going to do. He the first to perceive the whale's intent by the crafty upraising of his head, a movement that loosened his hold for the time. At that moment, his hand, Ahab's hand, had made one final effort to push the boat out of the bite, but instead he just falls out of the boat as it's as it's chopped apart because the jaw slips away from him. Yeah, he it says of Ahab, he fell flat-faced upon the sea, which is just so embarrassing. I mean, I feel like if you're fighting God, if you're wrestling God, occasionally you're going to go into some physically mortifying positions, like any wrestler. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying flat-faced. Yes, it's, it is meant to be, like, humiliating. Yes. Um, and uh, then Moby Dick starts pitch-pulling. <laughs> yep, apparently... apparently- 
they also do sperm whales also do it's the thing i had to gesture at the uh microphone because we still have no good description of it yeah so what pitch pulling means when a when a sperm whale does it and the book actually the way that it's described is the book describes the motion and then there's a footnote saying this is called pitch pulling by the way this motion is peculiar to the sperm whale and it's like it's certainly peculiar yeah the motion is that he is like moving his head up and down vertically and also spinning around in a circle so that apparently he can get like the best possible view all around him. Yeah, since we've previously established that whales have like two fields of view, one on either side of their head, and it's a big head. So yeah, Moby Dick's just head is sort of bobbing and circling to see everything around it and presumably just be like, ah yes, I'll remember you. Yes. Um, and then, uh, you know, having, having gotten this perspective he now starts uh swimming around the wreck of the boat um and this uh this this puts uh you know this puts ahab in a a pretty desperate situation um because ahab can't swim um because he has a peg leg yes he he can he can keep himself afloat but he can't like swim away and um no one can help him or rather well, okay, the crew of his boat can't help him because they're on the other piece of boat. Well, yeah, yeah, he's not on a piece of boat. Ahab's in the water. They're on a piece of boat. Yes, and, well, yeah, um, yes, no, you're right. So, yeah, there's the, um, yeah, so the, the They're crew... clinging to the other end from Fidala, who's on the stern. Yes, and Fidala, Fidala incuriously and mildly eyed him. So I think there is an idea that possibly Fidala could have helped, but he is not, not. going to. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and the other boats also can't help him because they are, uh, you know, they're nearby. But if they try to attack Moby Dick from here, that may be the prompt for Moby Dick to attack, to attack again. Yeah, yeah, and to do more than just create this, like, whirlpool by s- swimming in a circle really fast, which, that is remarkable. Like, the idea that a single whale swimming aggressively in a circle can create a whirlpool, that feels, like, mildly supernatural to me. That's, yeah. like, Superman spinning really fast powers. Yeah. Yeah, so, so everyone is just kind of watching Ahab you know flail to keep his head above Yeah, and water. Ahab is in the very center of the whirlpool, being dra- pulled down by it. Yes, and everyone on the ship can also see all of this happening. Um, and the ship is coming very close, uh, which which uh, gives Ahab his chance. Um, he hails the ship and says, sail on the... And then <laughs> Moby Dick sends a wave over him and he's, he's cut off. Uh, but then he manages to get up again and he's, he says, sail on the whale, drive him off. So they're going to use the whole ship to like yes. essentially kind of try to ram Moby Dick and push him or, away. Or get in the way so Moby Dick has to swim off. And so uh, the Pequod's brows were pointed and breaking up the charmed circle, she effectually parted the white whale from his victim. As he sullenly swam off, the boats flew to the rescue. So the white whale's like, oh, if you're going to be like that, <laughs> I guess I don't get to torment him and drag him down to the deep to see God's uh, foot on the treadle of the loom. Yes, uh, and Ahab is, Ahab is rescued into Stubb's boat. And he experiences a moment of total despair. Yeah. With bloodshot, blinded eyes, the white brine caking in his wrinkles, the long tension of Ahab's bodily strength did crack, and helplessly he yielded to his body's doom, for a time lying all crushed in the bottom of Stubb's boat, like one trodden underfoot of herds of elephants. Far inland, nameless wails came from him, as desolate sounds from out ravines. 
And this is, you know, it just occurred to me just now as you read that and I heard the word inland. This is the opposite of that, like, inland, yes. inner island. That you know? Ishmael so covets and so describes of himself. Yeah, like, in the depths of Ahab's soul at this moment, like, separate from everything around him, although obviously, like, continuous yes. with everything around him, there is a ravine of doom. Yes, there is just this absolute horror and despair. There is... Uh, there is an an inland place in Ahab's soul, and that is where we're getting his absolute uh, horror from. But he just kind of vents it all in a moment, which apparently is something that great men can do. Well, in an instant's compass, great hearts sometimes condense to one deep pang, the sum total of those shallow pains kindly diffused through feebler men's whole lives. Um... So yes, he is experiencing more agony in this moment than Ishmael will in his entire life. And now he's done. Now he's getting back up. Yes. Um, I, <sighs> I don't want to claim that I am one of the great men, but I have definitely <laughs> had moments like that where I just, like, hate everything so much and I'm, like, screaming in my soul for, like, a minute. And then I'm like, all right, fuck, okay, back to the thing I was doing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and this is definitely part of that whole Catskill Eagle in the Soul concept. You know, so such hearts, though summary in each one's suffering. Still, if the gods decree it, in their lifetime aggregate a whole age of woe, wholly made up of instantaneous intensities. For even in their pointless centers, those noble natures contain the entire circumference of inferior souls. So it's not just that, like, if you're noble, you'll have an entire lifetime suffering in an instant. It's that because you'll do that and you'll keep doing it, you will heap up more suffering than a lesser man can even imagine. Yeah, it's it's almost a sense of, like, Ahab taking on, like, the world's suffering because his soul is grand enough to bear it. Uh, it like, there's a weird sense of martyrdom here, I think. Yeah, it's that... His ability to to continue to feel so deeply and then continue onward means that he, the gods decree it, he will carry far more woe than a lesser man. Like, you know, Stubb is never going to even imagine this much woe in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, At least according to Ishmael, who is very taken with Ahab's ability to absorb woe. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, he gets it together. He asks for his harpoon. And uh, he checks whether his crew are still alive, and all of them are. Yeah, the only thing lost is the boat, is the stove boat. Yes, and so uh, they now, uh, now he basically takes over Stubbs' boat, and it becomes double banked, which means you know they've got they've got ten men rowing on this one boat now. Yeah. Um. So it's like moving extra fast. Um. But Moby Dick is moving faster. He seemed to have treble-banked his every fin, swimming with a velocity which plainly showed that if now, under these circumstances pushed on, the chase would prove an indefinitely prolonged, if not a hopeless one. So, Moby Dick, we've seen Moby Dick do this before, where Moby Dick will just take off into the distance faster than anyone can handle. It's how uh, the Rachel's boat was lost. Yes, and so uh, so at this point, uh, this means that their, their best hope uh, for for dealing with the situation is to return to the ship because the ship, of course, can move a lot faster than any of the whale boats can. Yes. Um, so the the boats go back to the ship. They are hoisted back on deck. I love this. There's a really good metaphor here for as they pile on sails. Um, uh, 
sideways outstretching it, you know, hoisting everything to her side and stacking her canvas high up, and sideways outstretching it with stunsels, like the double-jointed wings of an albatross. Yeah, so the Pequod is, again, setting every sail. Yes. Um, and, uh, and they, they are now, that, that thing where Ahab was like, oh yeah, Moby Dick spouts at intervals of exactly an hour, uh, that is now happening. Yes. Um, or I don't know if it's the spouts in an hour. It's well, like he, he goes down in an hour. Well, so so here's what I think is happening. Yeah. The whales glitter... Or, yeah, it's not... Yes, you're right. When he's at the service, he doesn't spout every hour. But when he when he gives his last spout and then goes down, it's then an hour before his next Yes, spout. yes. And Ahab knows all... As, we've, as was mentioned earlier in one of the chapters, uh, spouting and diving are extremely regular for sperm whales. They yes. have... Or at least, you know, Ishmael claims that they have incredibly specific timings to a specific whale... And here, uh, Ahab knows Moby Dick's timing to the letter. Yes, and so every time it is reported that Moby Dick has sounded, Ahab marks the time, and exactly an hour left, he immediately starts asking, does anyone sight Moby Dick? Um, and uh, if nobody sights the whale immediately, Ahab has himself lifted up. Yeah, he says, whose is the doubloon now? So there's this idea that every time we recite the whale, the doubloon changes hands. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a very interesting kind of shift because earlier Ahab was really crowing about the idea that he had sighted the whale so the doubloon was his and it could never possibly be anyone else's. But I think there is a certain sense in which um, if he were, because like, Based on the kind of rule that he gave before, mm-hmm. I feel like he could have reasonably said it would have fit the rule of his declaration. To say that he has the doubloon forever. Now. Yes, but he is clearly deciding that actually the way it works is whoever cites Moby Dick in the kind of, mo- in the period of... In the last lowering. In the, the last lower lowering, yes. That's the best way of putting it. Um, that's the person who has the doubloon. Yes. And I think he maybe needs that to continue to motivate everyone. Yeah, but and we'll also see some further discussion of it. Yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, Ahab gets lifted up to the top, up into the mast repeatedly to spy out for Moby Dick. Um, Basically, his only two states are, uh, well, now aloft and motionless, anon unrestingly pacing the planks. So he's either pacing on deck or he is up in his little basket uh trying to spot the whale yes um and uh while he's doing this while he's pacing he keeps passing the wreck of the boat which they've pulled back up onto the ship um and at some point he stops to kind of brood over it um and stub is there yeah stub also sees this and he decides to kind of uh make a joke out of it to sort of prove how brave he is. Yes, to evince his own unabated fortitude and thus keep up a valiant place in his captain's mind. So he wants to be like, he wants to ensure Ahab that his he's not, like, broken, he's not weak, he's going to keep up with him, even in the face of Moby Dick. Yeah, so he makes a joke, which, by the way, this is a kind of, I don't actually understand what's going on with this joke. I do know what the reference is, which is not cited on PowerMobyDick.com, but well, I Well, why don't it we up. read the joke, and then you'll say the reference, and I can give my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the joke is... The thistle the ass refused. It pricked his mouth too keenly, sir. Ha ha. So first of all, when he says the thistle the ass refused, he means the ass refused the thistle. This is a yeah yeah uh, yeah. But but um and the the explicit reference here is to um a one of Aesop's fables, mm-hmm. uh, which this is Aesop's fables is kind of an interesting like bit of historical information because like there's a set of like classical writings that are attributed to Aesop, but as they were uh, re-recorded 
over the centuries they got kind of added to so the ass eating thistles at least in its sort of like full form uh was like created during the renaissance although there are like earlier uh in sure, sure. but anyway the basic idea of the ass eating thistles is um the image of an ass a donkey a donkey yeah yeah carrying like rich fare but feeding upon thistles and this is used at first as a metaphor for like a miser right someone who like hoards up treasure but then insists on sustaining himself on like sort of meager fare right thistles being like obviously thistles are spiky so like eating a thistle is a painful experience Mm -hmm. um so that's that's the idea of the the ass eating thistles as a miser and then there's also an idea that uh, this is kind of a, a fable about how different people have different tastes. And so it's like uh, the the donkey is asked, like, oh, why are you eating these thistles when you could be eating something else? And the answer is, you know, I, I prefer this because that's the kind of weird donkey I am. <laughs> um, and uh, sorry, that was just not a, not a phrase I expected to hear. <laughs> anyway, so I, I don't really know in what way either the miserliness image or the to each his own image apply to this? So my take is that they don't. Stubb is not actually good at... Stubb often appropriates terms or images from writings, like his whole Zodiac thing, Mm -hmm. but steadfastly refuses to take the moral point or the meaning from them. He just repeats them as images and plays with them. So in this case, what he's saying is, oh, Moby Dick bit down on something that wasn't good and wasn't able to actually finish it. We still got oh, the wreck back. Yes, you're totally right. The ass is Moby Dick. The thistle is, um, is you know, is Ahab and the boat. And so, you know, the ass the thistle refused, it, or the thistle the ass refused, is saying the donkey bit down, went ow, and stopped eating. Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's definitely very instru- uh, in it's it's very it's part of this in the point that you're making that Stubb is reversing the fable right because in the fable the donkey does eat the thistle and possibly even likes it exactly so he just knows that donkeys eating thistles shows up in this book so it's a reference and so but he's making it into a very like frankly not very interesting joke like haha Moby Dick's a donkey yeah yeah like, that's the entire content here which is you know, Moby Dick failed to kill you, you know, because you were you were too spiky. He bit you but couldn't, you know, uh, couldn't swallow you. Um, and, frankly, kind of tasteless given that previously Moby Dick did bite Ahab very directly and seems to have come back for more. Yeah, um, and, well, Ahab agrees that it's tasteless. Yes, Ahab says, and I love this line, What soulless thing is this that laughs before a wreck? Man, man, did I not know thee brave as fearless fire and as mechanical... I could swear that were to poltroon. Groan nor laugh should be heard before a wreck. That means like a coward. Yeah, Yeah, poltroon means coward. So he's basically saying like, okay, I know that you are not afraid of anything because you're too stupid. Yes. (laughs) But hearing you say this, I would think you were a coward. Um, Yeah, because like, like, why, why would you make this joke if you weren't trying to show that you were brave or trying to refuse to understand the situation we're in. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah. uh, just, you know, just in general, Ahab is like, fuck off with this, like, joking about my wrecked boat thing. Yeah, yeah. And I do really love what soulless thing is this and brave as fearless fire and as mechanical because Gnosticism. Yeah, Like, the yeah. idea that some people are mechanical, are fundamentally, like, 
not in tune with the soul, with the pneuma, or with the mind. They're not people of faith or of gnosis, but are just, like, doing stuff in the world. And now Stubb is being very clearly classed as brave as fearless fire and as mechanical and as soulless all in one line. So we're getting this sense of, like, there is a division among the crew. And we'll see here, the next person to appear is Starbuck, who says it is an omen. Starbuck is faith, Stubb is mechanics, and Ahab is Numa. Ahab is the one whose soul is fully, like, driven to this, his will, his purpose. Yeah, Starbuck, Starbuck, uh, honestly, uh, Starbuck was not paying attention because Ahab did say, groan nor laugh should be heard before a rag. So basically saying, like, either a, like, positive or a negative emotional reaction to a rag. Both of those are bad. Yeah, groan is cowardice and laugh is, uh, flippant. Yeah, and, and Starbuck is groaning here, basically. Like, yeah. He, he's saying, ah, oh, yeah, it's an ill omen. Makes you think, doesn't it? And Ahab's like, fuck off, you two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> omen. Omen, the dictionary. If the gods think to speak outright to man, they will honorably speak outright, not shake their heads and give an old wives' darkling hint. Begone. Ye two are the opposite poles of one thing. Starbuck is Stubb reversed, and Stubb is Starbuck, and ye two are all mankind. And Ahab stands alone among the millions of the peopled earth, nor gods nor men his neighbors. Yeah, so basically, like, this is a moment where neither Stubb's response nor Stubb Starbuck's response to this wreck in any way, like, responds to whatever Ahab might be thinking or feeling yes. about it. And this just, like, fully underlines his sense of isolation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and really, this is the isolation of, you know, his, you know, incredible imperial brain within an iron circle. His, like... You know, the intense pneumatic quality of Ahab, his magnet life, and even Starbuck, who came so close to compassionating him, is now, no, you, Stubb and Starbuck are the two poles of humanity, mechanical and superstitious, neither of which seizes the real thing. I am alone on this ship and in the entire world in being a higher, like, a higher person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, at this point it's, it's evening. And so it's almost time, at, it's almost the time at which they are just not going to be able to see the spout anymore because it gets too dark. Um, and they also have to slow down because they don't want to run over Moby Dick during the night and then be stuck in a fight they can't fight because of the light. Yeah. So they, um, they, they take down some of their sails and, uh, especially apparently there's some idea that maybe Moby Dick is going to move more slowly or even stop during mm -hmm. the night. Um, so they just, uh, they take in some of their sails, they slow down a bit. Um, also, it should be clear, they're, they're sailing entirely lured now. They're running before the wind, which is to say, all of their sails are filled. This is as fast as the boat can go, and it's directly downwind. And we've had this symbolism of sailing into or with the wind, and whether one is more evil than the other. You know, a fair wind that blows towards Moby Dick is a foul wind. But, or, alternatively... A, a strong wind blowing you onto the shore, though the shore is good, because it is a lured shore, it is now terrible, it is now death, it is now danger, because to turn back would be to wreck your boat and be stuck on shore. So I think there's really interesting things going on with lured and windward in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, and, and this is where uh, Ahab kind of reestablishes the deal with the doubloon, which is that, you know, he says like, okay, Men, this gold is mine, for I earned it, but I shall let it abide here till the white whale is dead. And then, whosoever of ye first raises him, upon the day he shall be killed, this gold is that man's. 
And if on that day I shall again raise him, then ten times its sum shall be divided among all of ye. So he's basically, he's kind of renegotiating the deal yeah, here yeah. a little bit. He's, become, um, he's And he's more uh, generously than before. Yes, yes. Basically, you know... Um, you know, as as we kind of previously suggested, there's the idea that okay, actually, whoever raises Moby Dick before the last lowering, that's the person who really yeah, gets. Yeah, he the makes boring. that clear. Um, that that was like suggested before, but now it's he's stated it. Yes. But also, there's this idea that, uh, you know, and if it is him, he's not going to be miserly about it. Everyone gets to share in his victory. Yeah, like on some level, this is reason for everyone to really prefer that Ahab get it. You know, not really. If they individually get it, they get, uh... Well, yeah, it is There's all... 30 of the, They get three times as much gold if they individually get it, because there's 30 of them. So he this, says, is, this is a reason for, for example, like, Tashtigo, who's extremely, cle- like, clear-eyed... Yeah, yeah, to, to be hope watching that he gets super it. hard. But, like, if you're Ishmael, you're not gonna fucking spout, spot Moby Dick before Ahab. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, nobody's gonna spot Moby Dick before Ahab. Yeah, it's faded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that his... Him saying... You know, and if it's me, if, if it's my fate, when he was previously crowing about how it had to be him, he's now realized, mm, I need to let them share in my victory. I need them to understand that my success is going to be good for them as well. Yes. Um, you know, this is all humanity's war on Moby Dick. I'm just the general, the only real human, and the most important <laughs> person in the world. Yes. So yeah, that's pretty much the yeah, end of the chapter. Bitch. The end of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I respect your imperial brain and all that. Thanks. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah. So that's that's pretty much the end of the chapter. Ahab goes to not sleep. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so saying, he placed himself halfway within the scuttle and, slouching his hat, stood there till dawn, except when at intervals rousing himself to see how the night wore on. So yeah, Ahab continues to stand on deck. And never go below, and never sleep, nor sup, nor shave, till nor pray. That's the last one. Till the white whale be dead. Yes, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so yeah, that's that's the first day of the chase, and we have seen the white whale. Oh, it's so good. Uh, we should probably mention um, there's gonna be two weeks between this episode and the next one because I'm traveling. Yep. Um, so yeah, no no episode next week. You'll have to wait. A little longer for the chase the second day yes and our current plan is to do one episode each for the next two days of the chase so they'll probably be slightly shorter episodes because yeah we'll see but yeah it's going to be the chase the second day is one episode and then uh the final episode of the book will be the chase the third day and the epilogue and then uh then we'll see where we go from there yeah yep yep oh, but yeah no any any last comments on i think the symphony is a really great chapter yeah. I think it's got a lot going on, and it's also, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to sort of tease out of that involving it. And I really hadn't thought about the way that, until, like, we were recording the episode, I hadn't thought about the degree to which the symphony is the book of Job. It's, mm. like, it's very straightforwardly taking, I would say Job and Jonah have been, like, the two biblical connections i mean obviously well, one of them has a whale and one of them has leviathan job and jonah for sure i, I think you could also say that adam has had like a huge presence in terms of mm. figures ahab has been compared to oh certainly ahab but what i mean is that job and jonah keep showing up throughout the entire text mm. they are they're imbricated sorry they're like woven into um the like text and the way ishmael thinks about everything that's going on here adam comes up relatively often but that's a very easy figure whereas job and jonah require slightly more like 
slightly more run up to make them like function as a as an illusion and it keeps happening yeah no i, th- I think you're right um uh yeah it's uh, a- it's actually funny that jonah has not been such a big deal for a while I can't think of when the most recent Jonah reference was. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not as though... I'm not saying you're wrong about mm-hmm. uh, the Book of Job being, like, in the symphony, but I do feel like it's... I wouldn't quite call it a reference in, mm. in the way that there there have not actually been... I don't know that the name Job has really appeared in the book, uh, whereas no. Jonah has appeared explicitly. Jo- Jonah has been directly ref- referred to, but I think the Book of Job has been alluded to every time we talk about Leviathan in a fish hook, and that's been... There's been a pretty... Consistent I'm, body of references to the biblical Leviathan in those in those terms. Sorry. Uh, well, I'm just gonna check this really quick. Um, because I because I'm curious. It's very possible that yeah. there are. So you're definitely right that at least once that. Uh, okay. Yeah. No. You're right. Job actually, the book of Job has come up pretty pretty often. Um, so yeah. Um, I I take back the skepticism that I was yeah. trying to. Though some of those were Job. Yeah. Yeah. But I just <laughs> I just searched Job. In an which is spelled the same as like a job. Yeah, but there was an. I could just immediately see a number of like capitalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Job. (laughs) Um. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, Job is described as patient at one point. Yeah. Which I mean, God, he really is. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Okay. Well. Uh, I feel about ready. Sure. What tune is it you sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat. (laughs) 